and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. In this episode of IM3 Investigates, I am joined by Carl Nicholas, Director at Minesia Limited, and Anne Oxley, Technical Director at Brazilian Nickel. Both are members of IOM3, Carl is a chartered environmentalist, and Anne is a chartered engineer. Carl is an environmental specialist in mining and has 15 years experience working in and with mining companies to provide environmental assessment, management and support. Anne has 30 years experience in the natural resources sector and has been working in the nickel mining industry for more than 17. Since 2010, she has started up several ventures, including Brazilian Nickel, which she co-founded in 2013. The previous episode of IM3 Investigates looked at the issue of investors and responsible mining. This time, we will look at a little more detail of what responsible mining means on the ground. Anne and Carl, hello. 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 Can we just start off, please, Carl, um, if you could say a little bit about your background and experience to expand on what I said just now. Thank you very much for having me. My background is I've done a lot of environmental social impact assessments. So I started as a consultant to Scott Wilson and developing, drafting environmental social impact assessments. I then went into the industry and worked for a gold mine in West Africa, where I had to implement the environmental impact assessment that I had drafted. And I realized that there was a gap between the actual drafting of the reports and the implementation of it. There's a, there's a step change between the early stages and the implementation and actual follow-up of the impact assessments and management plans. So I set up Benicia five years ago now to fill that gap and provide companies from, with the support to get their environmental impact assessments more streamlined from exploration stages through to construction and implementation. Anne, um, you've been working on the ground as it were, or under the ground sometimes for a long time. Can you give a little bit more detail about your extensive on the ground experience for us, please? Oh yeah, I mean, I actually began my career um, working in oil and gas um, in the engineering side of things. So engineering construction as an engineer, then a project engineer, uh, in the Netherlands and France uh, and then in the early 2000s um, actually both my husband and I he's a mining engineer also a chartered with the IOM3 we started to get involved with uh, a junior nickel miner and then in 2003 I actually formally joined them uh, as sort of their, their group technology manager and at that point we were looking at um, heat leaching um, of nickel laterites, which very much still am. And, you know, I think that is a very responsible way of, of, of treating um, nickel laterites. We can perhaps talk a bit about that later, but that was in Turkey. So we moved off to Turkey, spent a bit of time there. Uh, and that all went very well. You know, we almost had financing in place for the full scale project. And then ultimately, sadly, the project stopped uh, due to a permitting issue, which was beyond our control if we were to be responsibly mining, shall I put it that way? So we then moved off to the Philippines, did some similar things there. And, and in 2010, basically, you know, Mike and I thought, well, actually, this is quite important to us. And 
we think we can do this ourselves. So we founded a company to further commercialize this nickel laterite heat bleaching. Uh, and once we found the right project, we set up Brazilian Nickel, which was in 2013. And that project was the POE Nickel project, which we purchased from Vale. Carl, in a previous episode, we heard um, Fiona use a definition of responsible mining as being, if I recall correctly, showing how mining can promote and support the delivery of the sustainable development goals. Does that resonate for you? Is, is that how you'd think of it or do you have a different approach? No, that's how I think of it. Um, the previous episode used the term, they used the definition from the IRMA, the Institute of Responsible Mining Assurance, I think it is. And it's a, it's a pretty good definition. It's Responsible mining is quite a fluid topic. It's a bit nebulous. It's, there's no real fixed definition of it. It depends on who's providing the definition. And the IRMA gives at least one standard definition that we can use. I've often heard it referred to as sustainable mining or green mining, and we're not really sustainable, but responsible mining is definitely a, a goal and it's what we should all be aiming for. Nobody sets out in the morning to go and destroy the environment willingly. They all, it's just making sure we do it in the right way. Yes, I think sustainable mining is a very difficult term, isn't it? Because by its very nature, you are taking a non-renewable resource. So, yeah. yeah. And Anne, from your perspective, do you welcome that kind of definition or do you have a different way of thinking about it? No, ab absolutely. I mean, you know, as I said, you know, I mean, we, we founded this company and it's very, very much part of my ethos for sustainable mining, but also, you know, the, the responsible mining. You know, I mean, it's not something we have to do. It's something that we want to do. And it's actually one of the reasons why we did, you know, found our original company and, and then Brazilian Nickel. Um, you know, so we're, we're focused, you know, we, we want to try and mine in a sustainable way, not just a responsible way. And, and I think that is possible. Um, you know, and therefore, you know, one of the aims is to try and leave a positive legacy as well for the communities where we operate. That's one of the key things for us. I mean, we try to be quite local. You know, we, we have a sort of an aim of local first. So that comes from the workforce and the supply chains and all of that. You know, for me, that's all part of responsible mining. I mean, ESG and, and CSR, corporate, corporate social responsibility, are a huge part of that. And I think even to operate these days, those need to be high on the agenda. I, I come back to the communities because where our project is, it's very rural. Um, there's, I mean, I think the, the IFC likened it to one of their lowest categories in, um, you know, in, in Africa. It is one of the poorest parts of Brazil. So, you know, one of the things that we can bring here, you know, is improving basic sanitation, living conditions you know, healthcare, education, they're all things that we can do as the project goes forward. And I think something that has to be said at the moment in respect with this, you know, I mean, whether people like it or not, if we want a greener world, if we want a low carbon economy, decarbonisation, we do need these metals, we need to mine them. So we need to, and, and not just for that side of things, but I think we also sometimes forget in the first world that there's a lot of developing countries out there that also need these metals just to begin to get to the sort of lifestyles that, you know, we all take for granted here. But the, the end suppliers of, of this, they want, you know, the OEMs for the EVs or they want sustainably mined products if they can. So I think, you know, we have to start looking at um, basically high resource utilization, low energy intensity projects, you know, minimal water use, all of these things fall into the responsible mining and obviously carbon footprint is huge, you know, for us, tailings that was mentioned quite a lot in part one of, of this podcast and it, it is huge you know we, we our process has dry residues which is perfect you know it's also 
much more responsible. So all of these things are key for me. If I can just add that with responsible mining, there's a lot of lessons that have been learned in the first world. And the whole purpose of, well, of my field is to try and get those lessons that we've learned in Australia and America and Canada and Europe and translate them to the developing country because developing world, because they want to have the same opportunities as we do. Everybody wants their mobile phones. Everybody wants their cars, their electricity, their houses, and it all comes from mining. And my whole focus is trying to get people to take that shortcut to go, instead of doing all the destruction and learning, following exactly the same path that we did in the US and like Sudbury with all the metal leaching, that's turned into a great school of mining knowledge because we learned how to deal with acid rock drainage. And to take those lessons so that places like Brazil and West Africa don't have to go through the same learning pains that the rest of the world has got to. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important uh, part of the lesson. And I think that's one of the things that as a professional body with a, a global outlook, IM3 is keen to, to really support that transfer of knowledge and that shortcutting of the of the bad lessons, if you like. So in, in your experience, Carl, are, are mining companies on the ground taking this seriously or are they just doing the, the ESIA and putting it on the shelf until the regulator or the investor comes to call? <laughs> That's a, a lot of my clients, a lot of the projects I work with, they recognize that ESG is important, uh, which is part of, that's why they bring me on board. They, the attitudes have changed. They have learned that ESG can be part of their dis- decision-making process, like the choosing of a wet process over the dry, bringing in heat bleaching technology, as opposed to CIL, for example. What is CIL? Oh, carbon and leach, sorry. It's a, it's a term for gold processing. And so they do, they do recognize that ESG is a, an important part of their process, not just because they want to get financing from IFC or you know, Greater Principles banks, but they don't want to be seen as the, as the baddies. And mining has, got, has had a bad reputation, and it's taken a lot of time to to improve that reputation. And I think we are getting there. People, the mining companies are realizing that ESG is not the hindrance that it used to be. It's not um, too cumbersome because that's what the IOM3, that's what the chartered environmentalists, all the, all the ESG specialists, Fiona's been doing it for years, educating the miners that they're not, they don't have to be seen as the bad actors all the time. They can bring in ESG that in an effective, efficient manner that makes them, it doesn't greenwash them, but it makes them able to sleep well at night. You know, nobody wants to be the one who's poisoned the Danube River. Nobody wants to be the one responsible for the Brumadino dams. They, you know, mining companies have just had to learn that what they're doing a lot of the time is best practice. Um, I go back to gold mining. There's there's always a concern that we're wasting cyanide. For some of these remote locations, you bring in cyanide from all over the world, it's costing you a fortune to bring it to site. You're not gonna just go and dump it on the ground and poison whole villages because that's your reagent. And every, every gram you lose of it is an equivalent amount of gold and equivalent amount of your product. And you don't wanna lose that. We're there to make money, but there's a way to do it without destroying 
environment and the communities as well. And so you, you've already said a little bit about um, the importance of ESG and responsible mining to, to, to your company and, and some of the issues you've been, been looking at. How did those issues manifest when you were starting up a project? What, what sort of things were coming up and how? Well, I think perhaps just sort of like to say a little bit about how we look at projects. Um, because when we, I know about nickel, I'm not a, I'm a much more generalist on other things. So, you know, nickel and cobalt are my areas. But I mean, nickel laterites, we know they're there. We don't have to go and explore for them. Um, you know, it's been done many years before. So when we look at what projects we want to get involved in, where we might want to, you know, try and purchase a project, whatever, you know, we actually have quite an interesting screening process, which we've sort of built up over 20 years. Uh, and, and we look at, we don't just look at the commercial side of it, which is, you know, as Carl just said, of course, that's very important. No miner is going to go out there to run a non-profitable organisation. That's not what we're about. But we also look at doability. And by that, you know, we, we look at basically, you know, how risky is the country? Is it a good mining jurisdiction? But also, you know, is it is it in a protected area? Is it um, are there large communities nearby? All these things. So when we go and actually select a project, you know, we try to before we even start, before we even go to the project, we try to to have as small an impact as we possibly can. Any mining project will have an impact, of course. But if you if you can pick a, a deposit that is it has very small communities nearby, you're not you know right next to a major river, you're not right next to a huge national park. There's no endangered species or plants on there, you know. And there are tools out there that you can use, and we do use them. You know, we look at Transparency International, Fund for Peace, things like this for for whether you know countries are are risky or corrupt or all of these sorts of things. Um, but after we've done that, we then obviously we go to the site and we have a look. Uh, and and it's, it is key to us whether we do have to, you know, resettle communities and things like that. Uh, and we try not to. Um, so that's, you know, how we select a project. But then when we do end up on the ground, you know, there are times because these are rural communities with very low level education. First things that we do, we, we do start to educate about our process. So we immediately engage with stakeholders. We talk about uh, what we're doing and our timelines. We try to be very realistic with those timelines as well. So we don't give undue expectations to any local communities. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you if you behave responsibly, then the local community comes with you. And certainly on the projects that I've worked with, that, that's that's what we see. I mean, we have we've very recently um, been talking to somebody who, who would like to work with us, would like to do some heat leaching. And they're at a very early stage in the project. Uh, it's, it's also in Latin America. But this is somebody with no experience whatsoever, really, of mining. They come from oil and gas. You know, and one of the first questions they asked us was like, well, can we mine right up to the village? And literally right up to the village. Yeah? And we were like, well, no, of course you can't do that. <laughs> So, you know, that there is still education that needs to be done out there. Um, but I think if you, were, if, you, if you look at these things in, in, with the right frame of mind and the right planning, then, you know, the community comes with you and that's the most important thing when you're starting a project. So really is what you're both saying that this is, responsible mining is actually just best mining practice. Is that, is that really it, Carl? For my part, mostly yes. Um, a lot of what... I do is translate the, what the mines do as best practice and put it into the context of environment and social management. And when it's put like that, mine engineers can understand that because that's, it's just the mentality, it's the way people think. 
for a long time, ESG has been seen as a, as a soft science that uh, any, basically anybody can do. And um, you can see it in the PFS reports and the, the old 43101s when you didn't really have a, a qualified environmental person reviewing the environment social sections of the reports. That has definitely changed. And, and looking at best practice, any exploration company going out into remote areas, they always work with communities because they rely on them. If they have a problem or anything that breaks down, it's the communities that will come to their aid. And so they spend a lot of time working with them, communicating with them, going and giving food during Ramadan and periods like that. And it shows. They believe the local communities love having the exploration companies in there. And the next stage is the education, both the mining side and on the community side. When you go into construction, because of the scales of the project, there's suddenly it's a lot larger between a, a drill rig and a trial pit to a thousand ounce gold pit. It's a quite a big change. And it's trying to make people aware of those changes. But as I say, it is just it is best practice and it's just the way that message is put across. Mining has always been quite reluctant to put out the that message and say we are, we actually do do a good job. Um, People always focus on the bad parts of it, and the mining industry is very good at not pr promoting the, the good work we do. I think there's a, a big theme that's coming out is uh, how important it is for the mining industry to be better at portraying the good rather mm. than constantly having to react to the bad. Yeah. Although, unfortunately, that is partly <laughs> the reality, isn't it? It's reality, but yeah. So, Anne, you've been looking at responsible mining from your company's perspective for a while. Has the practical view of these issues developed? Is it easier to do the right thing or harder to do the right thing? How's that changed in the last 10, 15 years? I think it is easier. Um, you know, if I go back to my early career when, you know, a bit like, you know, Carl was just saying then as well, I think we were a lot more compartmentalised then. You know, even at the, the the sort of supervisory level we weren't really thinking about sustainability or, or to be honest even that much about the environment we were just looking at the technical side you know and that was you know pre-2000 um, but even so it was it was very different than it is today I think you know any any senior engineer today or certainly the ones we work with and, and either work for us or work with our consultants you know we want them to think a bit more holistically about uh, you know what what is going on on the site um, you know, where is the right place to put something, not just necessarily because it's the flattest part of, of the land where we have, you know, what, where are we disturbing least, you know, so we do need that environmental input, I think, from an early stage. I think there's, to be honest, a lot more guidelines now as well, you know, we have things like the, the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, you know, we've always had things like equator principles, but, you know, the IFC performance standards have improved. There's a lot of organisations out there now putting forward various toolkits to, to help mining companies as well. And, and so I think we are moving in the right direction for, for information availability for all mining companies to have a look at. And Carl, you've, you've done a lot of work with different people, as you say, trying to uh, make a reality out of their, their commitments, if you like. Have you got some good practice examples you can share with us? Going back to that topic of getting the mining industry to say some some of the good things. Yes, I work with one in Ivory Coast that have built a school and uh, a well for their local communities. But they've 
gone one step better. They haven't just they haven't just given the money or just built the classroom and left it. They've provided the technical expertise. They got local companies to build to do the construction. They bought materials locally. They provided the expertise and supervision as well as the funding. Um, with regards to the water wells, they've maintained the water wells. They've done water quality tests on them to promote it, and they they engage with the community quite a lot. One of the biggest examples is probably um, De Beers with the AIDS drugs in Botswana, where they sponsored an anti-AIDS program. But most of the mining companies I work with have got the little subtle things that really help communities, the providing of schools, accommodation, improving of roads. And people are always interested in what they're going to get out of a project. It's always the first thing is work or education. And mining companies are really good at putting out giving the money and to build schools, support an educational program. There's another project that I worked on that offered scholarships for various, various people of the community to go and do environmental studies. They offered a scholarship to go and do a university course abroad. Um, they wanted mechanics and the whole plan, they had a 10-year had a plan to train local mechanics in, from the local villages they were going to go to Moscow because that was the nearest hub for, I think it was Caterpillar. They were going to go to be sent to Moscow for training, for a two-year training program, and then they'd come back and work for five years and on the mine, and then they could go off on their own. And said several times, you know, the companies I work with, and obviously you, you work with companies that have perhaps more awareness and interest than others. How, how widespread beyond the enlightened few, or is it the enlightened many now? Uh, are we talking here, Carl? I think it's, I've got a fairly limited pool because the people that employ me are generally the enlightened pool. But I do talk to other companies as well. And there's a, there's a growing pool of mining environment specialists, which was quite a small pool maybe 10 years ago. But there's a growing pool of people with the right skills to help mining companies achieve their ESG goals. So it's... Definitely more than a few. Whether it's the enlightened many yet is, is hard to tell. I think it's coming, though, and I think it's coming quite quickly. One of the things, Anne, that um, I've heard people complain about is that there are so many different groups of people wanting to know whether you're doing it right or not, that there's a, an almost a torrent of information requests. Is that a huge barrier, actually, to adopting responsible mining? But you're just being asked so much by so many people in slightly different forms all the time. Because you, you know, if you're doing good practice anyway, it's not that you need to change your behaviours, it's just the reporting that's different. Or is that wrong? No, I, I can imagine it is a, a, a large barrier to, to many people. I mean, there, there are costs involved with this. You know, of course there are. Um, it's um, because like you say, you can do the practice, but if you, if you don't monitor reports, you've got to report against what you're doing for people to see. You know, most smaller companies don't yet have, you know, sustainability reports and things like that. Many do. Uh, it's something we do intend to do because I think it is important. Many standards that you can follow these days, Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative is something that we've been looking at for a while and we've been asked to follow, you know, by the DFC. We already knew about it. It's not that onerous, but again, it's, you know, you do have to, you almost, I wouldn't say you need another department, but I think already the, the ES side of things, you know, the governance is is something that I think, you know, that's obviously done by your board and your management and, but the actual environmental and social side of things, maybe once upon a time, a small mining company would have one or two people. They now, if, if they want to follow you know, best practice, they need a much larger department so that there are, there are costs associated with that. Um, 
but to be honest, I think these are probably costs that they're going to have to spend anyway. Um, because if a, if a company wants to be funded these days, one of the first things that any funder looks at is ESG. You know, and if, if you don't meet the, 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 the requirements, they just won't fund you. So whether it might be quite onerous for some small companies, I think it's just something that people are going to, the, the uptake is going to have to be wider and not just the, you know, the, perhaps the enlightened view at the moment. I mean, just to say something on, on, on good practice, we're in the middle of a global pandemic at the moment, which is, you know, we've, we've not seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And I think a lot of mining companies have reacted really well to that. You know, I mean, where, where our mine site is, as I say, is very rural. And I've not been there now for eight months because I can't go. But um, they had very little testing facilities. They've had very little test kits. You know, one of the things that we've been able to do is, is secure those for the local health centres and make sure that they're trained in how to use them. And they're not just using the serological tests, which, to be honest, don't really tell you very much. You know, so they've been using proper PCR tests and antigen tests, so they know what's going on in the communities. And I know many, many mining companies have reacted extremely well to the situation we're in, partly so they can continue to operate, if we're honest, but also because I think they feel they want. To. Yeah, I, th I think um, the best, surely, is always when your selfish interests align with the altruistic interests. It makes it very powerful. Yeah, I mean, just just one more thing on that, though, that I would perhaps like to say as well, you know, I mean, again, just talking about our own experience, you know, I think responsible mining comes with more than just what you do. And, you know, it has to go through to your suppliers and, and also ultimately perhaps even your customers. But part of being responsible is to grow the community that you're in. And when there's a lot of growth that can happen, you know, that's great, but it has to be done in a responsible way. You know, and some companies, I think, I mean, for instance, an example that we did when we were refurbing our demonstration plant, there was a local company that was quite capable of doing all the earth moving works that we needed, but had no, no, you know, procedures and practices in place, wasn't even registered with the tax authorities, all sorts of things, you know, that we could have just walked away from that company. But instead, we actually sort of led them by the hand through all the processes so that they now operate in a much safer way, but also in accordance with all the regulations and in accordance with all the policies. You know, and that company has since been on to work on big renewable projects which are going on in the area, things like solar farms, you know, and, and that's another way of mining companies being responsible within their community is, is to help grow the small sort of suppliers and service companies so that they can supply what they need as they go forward. So Carl, um, surely you must have uh, lots of occasions when you've been able to or have had to help companies get their heads around this transparency point. What, what sort of things do you get them to do or to think about in terms of managing this transparency pressure, this reporting pressure? First two things are communication. It's talking to, one, you've got to talk to each other within your group and break down those silos. And then the other one is having the documentation to support it. And a lot of companies, you can say you've got all of this, but until you have the most simple environmental register you can have is your document register of all your environmental permits and procedures and plans. And that allows people to be able to see what they've got. So as soon as they can, as soon as a mining company can get all their documents under control, we do it for the geology already and for all the engineering work and all the road work and all the exploration work. We have all these registers and all these tracking procedures in place. All we have to do is extend it to the environmental and social side in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we, we've talked about how every project needs to be commercially viable if you're going to go and dig some stuff up somewhere. 
Do you think that the cost of meeting the expectations around responsible mining are stopping projects from happening, as opposed to whether you could do it responsibly or not? I think, as I said, I think people have to find the money from somewhere. And if, if you're going to finance, if you're looking to finance a project, which is why you're doing a lot of these things, if you don't have a, a natural sort of embedded, if it's not naturally embedded within in your, your, your management's way of thinking, you still have to do these things to, to be financed. And if you need to raise money, more money, sadly, to be able to do that, that's just simply the way it's going to be, I think. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the finance for new, particularly critical metal projects is going to come from end users, from, from automakers and, you know, people doing um, electric storage systems, et cetera. And, you know, and, and they, the whole point of that, what they're trying to do is, is to lower pollution to to give us a, a greener world and they're not they don't want to go to companies which you know negatively impact that because people look up the supply chain these days so you know companies are going to have to look at this and that includes for me you know trying to reduce their carbon footprint as well so clearly carl responsible mining is becoming more and more relevant we can argue about whether it's the enlightened few or the enlightened many but we're getting there and um, what are the tools that a mining professional can use? The SIS tend to be, they, depending on who does them and what, what jurisdiction they're in, I use the term ESIA to encompass everything. So it's Environment Social Impact Assessment. So the ESIA is a, is a really good tool for managing that. You get a, yeah, a lot of people do, do ESIAs. There's a lot of, there's a range of companies from small one-man bands up to multinational global corporations that can do it. The key to it is it's got to be practical and suitable for the project. They, there's no point in having a, a gold standard ESIA for a tiny little um, trial pit in the middle of the desert that's not going to affect anybody. So you've got to make it site specific. And for ESG or people getting into the space of ESG training, and it tells the story of the mine. So you introduce it, you get your your jurisdiction setting, your project, what's involved, what the alternatives are, then you look, start looking at the impacts. And it's the um, SI, it's a great tool for it, but it is just a tool. The key thing from an operational point of view, and I'm sure Anne has an understanding of these, is that your ESI gets done, it's filed, and it, it's generally parked. The next stage of it is your management system that implements your, all those procedures, all those plans, all those commitments that you make in your ESA. It's fine to say we're going to go and build an information center in the village, but you actually need to go and then do it. You need to go and staff it, provide it with information, and make it useful for the community. And Carl gave you a lovely segue there by saying that uh, he's sure that you've got some practical experience from an operator's perspective. Go on then, share. Well, I think, you know, I do think that what comes out of the, of the ESIA is, you know, my, my latest experience is in Brazil and it's a slightly different system there and one that's quite interesting because you, you're actually, you're not given an environmental license, you're given what they call a licentia previa, which is like a preliminary license. And before you get your full, it's actually called an installation license, but it's actually an environmental installation license, you have to show that you are doing all this environmental management, that you have put all your programs in place and they're actually audited by the state organization for environment, which is different for each state within Brazil. And I think that's quite an interesting way of doing it because they come and make sure that you haven't just parked your, your ESAA document 
on the shelf. You are doing all the things that you said you were and that they we, we have, you know, we're in this process at the moment. You know, bizarrely, our small unit is, is already fully permitted and can operate, but which we're about to um, expand slightly. But for our full scale project, you know, which is a much larger project, we will be in the process over the next few months of putting all those environmental management plans into effect. Uh, as the project goes forward and there's other tools that we use you know we we have when we look at things I've already mentioned you know sort of our project screening and you know we have lots of other systems in place so that we are you know monitoring and reporting against various even some of the um, the sustainable development goals of, of the UN perhaps unsurprisingly one I'm particularly passionate about you know is, is gender equality for instance you know but that's also diversity inclusion gender equality these are also parts of responsible mining but how can you do that for instance and this is the same for anything that's in the responsible mining sort of spectrum you know whether it's your CO2 footprint so you're doing your LCA analysis so all of these tools come together I think and, and it is a lot of you know basically monitoring what you're doing reporting what you're doing and then you can actually sort of issue your progress to people and see where you're at and whether you're meeting you know what these responsible mining aims are. So a question for both of you if you were in front of a, a group of young mining professionals perhaps they've just graduated from a, a, a degree course or something like that and, and they want to know so how do I get my head around what it means to be a responsible miner they need to talk to etc. As, as a young let's say engineer you know you, you go and work for a company and and you learn and as I said earlier once upon a time perhaps it took a long time for anybody to teach you anything other than what you've done your degree in um, I'm hoping that's changed a little and I think you know mentorship or even sponsorship can help with these things so that somebody much higher in an organization than you might normally get to speak to can actually help you understand that it's not just about you know the process engineering or the geology anymore but it is about the whole package of what's needed for a mine to basically for the social license to operate as that mine which is key because without it it doesn't matter whether it's great geology or the best process in the world and then I suppose it's you know maybe it is just widen your own horizons from what you do so you know Colin has mentioned before you know ESIAs are public you know so if, if you want to grow in the industry and eventually perhaps, you know, as, as a graduate head towards management, et cetera, read about other projects, you know, go and look at ESIA, see what's being done to mitigate some of the problems that there once were and read papers about best practice. So we've got, all, you know, the tailings uh, and, and residue disposal and, you know, can we have less waste? You know, can we make more byproducts as we go forward? And, and to ask these questions and try and get information on some of those questions so that your, your, your knowledge base is a little bit wider, perhaps, than just your own specific speciality. I would agree, the, especially for young mining professionals, is go out and ask questions. And from the environmental side, most companies or most ESAs have a non-technical summary. And um, the non-technical summary is normally like 20 to 40 pages. It, details all the high-level risks, um, all the me measures that are going to be used for it. And you can read them about various projects. And uh, for environmental, young environmental professionals, I would encourage them to go and get some experience with the mining company because a lot of the, or a number of environmental people that I've met, have, their first reaction is mining is bad. It's the legacy issue we've got to deal with. You know, it's, we need the mining. We, we can't live without it. If we can't 
grow it, we have to mine it. And a lot of what we grow requires a mining or extractive industry input in any case. So one last question for both of you, if I may, please. You know about IOM3 clearly, you're both members, excellent. We're the body for mining professionals in the UK and beyond. What do you think we should be doing to try and promote responsible mining more widely? The Institute does a, does a lot of good, particularly from an environmental perspective. I deliberately selected the IOM3 for my chartered environmental course because it's relevant to the industry I'm in. And I didn't want someone who doesn't have a mining background to be reviewing the reports that I would produce as a ESG person for a mining project. Managing a water treatment plant is very different to managing a mine site. And the IOM3 has done a good job on that. I think we just got to keep advertising and keep promoting the good work that's done. The podcast is a great way of getting information out. It's always good. We like to share that kind of thing. And I think something that, that we shouldn't forget is how important the, the chartered status is and what that means. You know, we can't do much of what we do without the competent people uh, to report upon uh, the various stages of our work and independent competent people. But the chartered engineering side of this is extreme. What I'm, what I'm trying to say by that is that people take it very seriously what their responsibilities are. Uh, I think people forget when you are a chartered engineer, you sort of almost swear an oath that you know what you're what you're doing is is as accurate as it can be. Um, that there's no cutting corners. That when you review something, you re you review it with a specialist view. Um, and in light, but you know, in light of tailings disasters and things like that, there's a lot more reviewing of that sort of thing going on. And people need to know where to find you know people that that they can trust. And I think you know, as Carl said, you pick a an institute for a reason and and i think you pick that because hopefully the, the quality of their chartered engineers is good i mean a couple of other things again in the first stage and we've touched upon this by just the conversation we just had but i, I think there's a big role for the iom3 to play in pushing you know people to study what we need you know whether it's for mining or, or other industries that use metals and minerals there is a lack of particularly girls still but, but even boys in the UK at the moment, I think studying engineering and, and science in general. Um, so there's definite role there. And perhaps even, and again, this was touched upon in the first podcast, but I mean, the whole side of, of whistleblowing, um, if you want to call it that, but when people see something that is correct and they go through normal channels to discuss with perhaps the company they're working with or whoever, and if that's ignored, you know, could there be a role there for the IOM? For people to be able to come to them and I believe you're part of you know a, a global alliance of professional bodies as well so that you know people know that ultimately if they're not listened to in the work that they're doing for somebody they have somewhere to come and and get more feedback on and, and possibly therefore assistance in 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 stopping future for instance tailings dam disasters etc yeah I think those are all really interesting ideas thanks for listening to this episode of OM3 investigates I hope you've enjoyed it and perhaps learned something too. Uh, apologies if there were any uh, technical issues with the sound. As you might understand, at the moment, we're recording these remotely over the internet, and so the sound is not always what we might wish. Keep safe. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, 
please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.